Jason Lewis. I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. You know, and to start things off, if you're a regular listener of the podcast and you value what you get from us, consider joining our community of monthly supporters. You can feel good knowing you're helping empower people, you know, around the world make a difference on climate. And even five bucks a month goes a long way in helping us deliver the content you hear. All you need to do is to head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and then click the donate button. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter if you have not done so already. It offers facts on climate solutions, perspective on climate news, and tips on how to make a difference. And make sure you check your junk mail folder in case it ends up in there. The next one will be out on the uh, 21st of March. So whether you're traveling for business or pleasure, you know, flying is admittedly a convenient way to get from point A to point B. And, and in some cases, you know, really the only practical option. But at the same time, air travel is currently responsible for about 2.5% of global carbon emissions, which is equivalent to roughly 20% of the emissions of the U.S. On top of that, demand for flights is growing rapidly, only briefly interrupted by, by the COVID pandemic. Uh, airlines have made a lot of bold pledges. Most of their you know, near-term strategy, though, focuses on using cheap carbon offsets to address their emissions and an approach that's had you know many critics. For those of us who like to travel but are concerned about climate change, you know it's easy to find yourself asking the question, should I be flying? And so today we're going to take a big picture look at air travel with the goal of helping each of us make a more informed decision about flying. But before we go there, what do we have uh, for this week's reason for hope? Well, there's a coalition of environmental groups that are suing to block oil and gas auctions in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. This, this area that's up for auction covers roughly 70 million acres and is uh, scheduled to be auctioned at the end of the month. And these environmental groups are arguing that the government has failed to adequately consider the auction's impact on endangered species, as well as the um, harm to onshore um, refining will have on vulnerable communities. And ironically, uh, this auction has been driven by the Inflation Reduction Act. It was a concession included in the, the bill to get the final votes needed to, uh, to get it passed. However, there is a bit of a spanner in the works here, and that is uh, just recently it's been pointed out that the um, Interior Department in the U.S. has been dragging their feet on this uh, five-year offshore oil drilling plan. And that's really got our favorite senator, or should I say least favorite senator, Joe Manchin up in arms. So hopefully if they can keep stalling, um, that's not such a bad thing. Um, I never thought I'd hear myself say that asking the government to stall something was a good thing, but in this case, it uh, seems that it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really the, the environmental groups are doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of just making it more and more difficult to get, you know, new oil and gas infrastructure in place. And hey, whether it's intentional or not, having the Interior Department drag their feet on a five-year, you know, drilling plan, it's a good thing. And I'm, I think Joe Manchin being upset is generally a good thing when it comes to the environment. Yeah. You know, the thing that blows my mind though is, is you know, our memories are so short that we we've sort of forgotten about the whole deep water horizon in the Gulf of Mexico and how much of a massive disaster that was. I mean, it's a 
biggest oil leak in history. And here we are about to release 70 million more acres of it. And, um, you know, for the same sort of oil rigs scattered all across it. Anyway, hopefully these guys are successful in their legal pursuits and um, can get this block permanently. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, pivoting to our main topic, our guest today is Jocelyn Timperley. Jocelyn is a freelance climate journalist who lives in Edinburgh and has covered the aviation industry extensively. She writes for the BBC Future, Energy Monitor, and several other outlets, and previously worked on the climate website Carbon Brief. She also edits at Future Planet, an environmental solutions vertical at BBC Future, and you can find her on Twitter at J-L-O-I-S-T-F. And we are excited to have her on the program today. Jocelyn, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thanks for having me. So we'll start you off with the, the question we do all our guests. Uh, when it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? I think there's been a big change in the past, like say, like eight years since the Paris Agreement or seven years since the Paris Agreement was made. Like I noticed a really big difference, a huge rise in attention on climate, like the Friday for Futures movement and this and sort of the young people like really becoming super engaged in that. Um, but also just like so many more people are working on it. And in journalism, there's so many more journalists working on it now, like outlets are concentrating on it so much more. So I think there's like an expansion in like attention. And with that, in some areas, like progress on actual solutions, less so in right. other areas. <laughs> but right. um, I definitely think like the spotlight's on it, which is really good. Um, so hopefully it will stay on it and that will sort of help to move progress along. Yeah, and I I agree with you. It's it's great to see young people really pushing hard, you know, and not that, that we all aren't, but it's, you know, they're definitely engaged in higher numbers and I think demanding attention. So before we get into our uh, our topic, maybe a bit more about you, how did you find your way into writing about uh, climate change? Uh, so I just always, um, I sort of found out about climate change when I was maybe 17 or something, with, I'm now 34. And I think I just read an article about it, you know, like a newspaper article. And I was like, whoa, this sounds really serious. Um, <laughs> and, and was actually sort of from that moment, like quite concerned about it. Um, and, you know, obviously, the more you read about it, the more concerned you become. But then I studied environmental chemistry at university and kind of decided to become a journalist like a little bit later when I was 25. And basically, as soon as I kind of landed on journalism as a like potential career, like climate change was the obvious was obvious like topic so I was kind of always I was kind of more to be honest like climate change came first and then kind of journalism was like oh that's a great way I can sort of engage with climate change <laughs> um so it worked out really well for me uh, in that sense it's, it kind of combines like two big passions you know, it's nice when things fall into place like that <laughs> so since we're talking about aviation maybe just to start to kind of index folks how much does aviation sort of currently contribute to global emissions and and how is that kind of forecast to change, you know, with time? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of kind of depends. Um, first of all, even like its contribution to emissions depends on whether you are looking at like only CO2 or whether you're looking at its like entire climate impact. So I think usually the estimate for like CO2 emissions in the global mix is 2.4 or 2.5 percent. But when you um, include the non-CO2 impacts from aviation which is basically 
all of the other mix of things that get emitted from aircraft high like at high altitude um that has like this additional warming impact which is like quite a few different estimates for but like roughly maybe two or even three times uh the it kind of doubles or triples the overall climate impact depends also on what time frame because they're much shorter ter- shorter term it's, it's a bit like methane you know methane has a much like bigger right. but shorter uh lasting so these other uh, impacts are, are even shorter lasting than methane but they can be like really big so basically like contrails is the most obvious one that you can like literally see some right. some atmospheric conditions are conducive to forming contrails and that's like water vapor basically and that can trap uh heat as well in a kind of in a short-term basis so that's it's like a bit more of a complicated picture um with the short-term uh sorry with the yeah, short-term emissions the kind of non-co2 that makes sense and you know is aviation generally like are people you know traveling more less like what's the what's sort of the the forecast in terms of mm-hmm. of aviation as we look you know into the future so i mean basically aviation has has been like exploding exponentially for the past kind of 20 years or so the caveat to that is obviously the pandemic when it massively dropped um but right. i was just looking today and i think this year it's projected to go back to like pre-pandemic levels again so um, it kind of like that, it caused this temporary like reduction and it's kind of slowly been climbing back up. And now we're kind of almost at 2019 levels or maybe around 2019 levels this year. But yeah, I mean, generally like the projections for the future and what's happened so far is just this like huge increase. Which I guess makes it all the more important as we're talking about emissions, knowing that it's something that's set to expand rather than than, uh, than contract. Yeah. And it also means that any cuts you make have to be like put into perspective of this constantly expanding industry. So, you, you know, if you, if you cut emissions by 1%, but expand by 6%, uh, then you haven't really cut emissions. Right, right. <laughs> no, that makes sense. So I, that's sort of a good segue. I mean, what what kinds of climate commitments are major airlines making? And, you know, what degree are they relying on reducing emissions, which is obviously best, versus, mm-hmm. you know, offsetting? Mm-hmm. So I think in the past few years, quite a lot of airlines have made like net zero by 2050 commitments. But I think that most of that is kind of focused on offsets as the, I, I think usually there's not a clear, um, a clear like division between the sort of different ways you can cut emissions, but um, offsets are the easiest and cheapest way to do it. Some airlines have got, um, I think, or sorry, some countries anyway, have got targets for SAFs, so sustainable aviation fuels, like saying they might they should have a certain amount in the mix by 2030 or something like that. But I, I, I'm not sure that airlines themselves, airlines have like had a lot of commitments on SAFs, like the kind of global a, uh, airline body has had goals on that, but they just always miss them <laughs> like by like a lot. <laughs> so like currently, I think it's there's something like maybe 0.1% of, of all um, aviation fuel is like kind of sustainable fuels. It's minuscule. And they've had targets like, you know, much higher than that quite a long time ago that have just been completely missed because there's just not been a ramping up of that at all. So I think it's a mixed picture. Like these, the net zero goals are fairly new, but the thing with aviation is always that it's like, always like, oh, we'll do that in the future. But when you look at any progress that's actually been made, it's very little. Um, like, you know, concrete kind of actual reductions in, in emissions are pretty thin on the ground apart from through like efficiency, which is, you know, great. Like planes are much more efficient now than they were like 
50 years ago so that is a that is like promising and it makes sense for airlines anyway to have better fuel efficiency but that's kind of the only thing that really you see concrete progress on sounds like maybe a lot of aspirational like good energy but but not necessarily delivering it and you know you mentioned sustainable aviation fuels and i guess for folks who may not kind of be aware of what that is i'm you know generally speaking i guess there's probably different paths but we're talking about stuff that is non-fossil fuel based to create an aviation fuel is that Correct. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's like a few different possible alternative fuels than fossil fuels. Um, the most advanced one is like a, um, waste biofuels, basically. So like stuff made from piles of like biomass waste, basically. Or I, you know, I, I guess in the biomass area, it can also be like any kind of plant matter. Um, but that's generally seen as like not a great idea um, to kind of start like cut, you know you don't want to be cutting down forests or using cropland to make fuels for aviation. And then there's Basically, uh, the other kinds of fuels are fuels made from hydrogen. And you can make it from green electricity, basically. Like, so you use green electricity, you can make a fuel that's just hydrogen. And then from hydrogen, you can also produce other fuels, more like fossil fuel-like fuels, by combining it with like captured CO2. So basically, that could produce something that's like more akin to a fossil fuel as well. And it's kind of man-made, created from capturing like, you know, energy from sunlight and uh, captured CO2. Um, and then the other one is like ammonia, which is also made from hydrogen, and it's let it's sort of you know I suppose in between that it's 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 also it would also require more changes in the plane than like a, a sort of synthetic fuel made from hydrogen that's more like a sort of normal fuel. Um, but there's kind of pros and cons to that as well. So maybe not a, a silver bullet, but it sounds like the biofuels could play some role. The if I'm hearing you right, the risk there being. You know, like it has been with with cars, where it starts to compete with mm-hmm. area we're using to grow food, hydrogen yeah. potential, but lots of hype on the front end. And yeah. then it sounds like ammonia, um, maybe also an option, but there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be changed. Yeah, I mean, I think synthetic fuels and um, biofuels are the two that, are in the short term, are possible because they don't require so much changes in like the stru- in the sort of actual plane itself. Like they can be mixed in with fossil fuels to a certain percentage. And then slowly increased. Well, let's talk about, I guess, the other side of the coin, because I think a lot of people who fly are probably heard, you know, about offsets, whether that's airlines using offsets or, you know, having it be something that you can add to, to address your your given flight. Um, but mm-hmm. a lot of times you hear them using type of offset called red offsets. And I'm wondering if you could talk about sort of, you know, what are the offsets they're chiefly using? What are, you know, red offsets and how effective are they? So red offsets are, are just like a kind of mechanism that was set up some years ago in, at the UN for, it's basically a system for like financing conservation using carbon credits. So the idea is that like guilty <laughs> rich people can like pay off their carbon um, by like helping to prevent deforestation or protect forests in like poorer countries there's a lot of debate on how good it is because you know obviously like we do need to pay money to um protect forests like and it's really it's really important that we like invest in that and often it's really good to give money to like developing countries to help them protect their forests but i think the problem usually comes i mean there are have also been other problems with sometimes human rights uh violations and issues around that with these kind of projects which is kind of another thing but when you're looking at kind of the purely carbon side it's just can be quite hard to guarantee that you know the, the hundreds of years that your carbon dioxide is going to be in the atmosphere is is going to be compensated for by whatever project you've paid for so one one issue is that you 
if you um, are paying just to conserve a forest, so it's sort of saying, like, well, if I didn't do this, there'd be more emissions in the atmosphere. But but it does it means that like you conserving that forest doesn't actually mean that you're kind of taking in carbon dioxide from the air. It's just you just stopped more going out. So actually, over the overall equation is the emissions from your flight still go out, and there's no reduction. So this so this is one of the big issues with offsets that so you you can have two kind of offsets. There's like the kind of imaginary emissions that might have been that you stop from happening, or there's like genuinely um, no we've like you've emitted through your flight and we've heat over here we've pulled down carbon and that's like now permanently out in the atmosphere. So we've kind of like com- really compensated for your emissions. For example, if you grow a forest, then that would that would compensate for the emissions you've released in your flight. But the problem with that is that forests take a long time to grow, they could burn down. You know, lots of issues could happen with them over the very long term. So it's very hard to guarantee offsets like in a, on a permanent basis. And then in, in addition, there has been like some issues with they're not necessarily um, tracked too well. So yeah, personally, I feel like like I feel like giving money to protect things or you know to to support renewable energy or all these things. We obviously need money going there, but like the kind of idea that you can like just literally kind of negate your flight and it's just like as if it didn't ever happen. It's just doesn't play out in the real world, unfortunately. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's sort of it's complex and and messy on a lot of levels. And yeah, other than you know sort of the the type of uh, offsets where you're actually extracting carbon from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to guarantee. Mm-hmm. I think some airlines and initiatives are like now looking at direct air capture, which is which is like kind of literally pulling it straight out the air, which is like great for loads of reasons, but it's just really expensive. So that's the other thing about um, you know kind of looking at like off forest offsets versus uh, other options for reducing emissions is that they're way cheaper. Yeah, naturally, they're not going to go to the expensive ones first, I guess. <laughs> so you sort of hinted at this. I mean, I guess when it comes to offsets, it's challenging at this point to sort of think somehow you're negating your your flight. But obviously, there's still you know positives in doing that. I mean, what do you see as sort of better options going forward? I mean, the best option for reducing aviation emissions is reducing flights. Like right. that's unfortunately the truth of the matter. <laughs> So the, I, I think that measures to support a re- reduction in flying or um, at least kind of trying to curb the growth are really important. And that doesn't necessarily mean like not traveling. It could mean lots of other policies, like, for example, a great policy for reducing air travel is like high speed rail. Implement high speed rail so people can get from place to place faster also, you know, um, sort of adding fuel taxes to aviation. Often aviation is just not taxed very highly. Like flights are crazy cheap, especially for how many, you know, how polluting they are. So, you know, if we made flights more expensive and train travel cheaper in places where there already is available train travel, like Europe, you know, th- that would be a huge, a great policy for reducing aviation emissions. Um, and think of the US, it's a bit more complicated because I realized that this kind of rail network is is not so strong. So I think like building out that rail network would be a great way of um, like tackling this issue. Yeah, our, our rail network's pretty sad, unfortunately, <laughs> compared to, to Europe or, or China or Japan. Well, you're already sort of getting to another question I had, which was kind of talking about the sort of most promising solutions for reducing aviation emissions. And we touched on, I guess, sustainable aviation fuel. You're talking here about, you know, how do we actually fly less? Yeah, what else is there out there that that has mm-hmm. promise in terms of cutting emissions? Yeah. I mean, so just an additional point on the kind of fly less um, side, one of the things that you often hear in kind of kind of people among campaigners and things is like, 
not not flying at all, but like fly half as often for twice as long or things like this. So just kind of generally reducing your flights, like trying not to go for weekend trips, maybe like try to take to combine trips. And I think a good point in that is also like businesses can help with that. So companies, I think that we've seen a big change already due to the pandemic and the kind of practices of, of um, company travel. But companies could be supporting people to, you know, combine their holidays and their work travel there's a scheme by this uh, charity in the UK called Possible that's kind of encouraging businesses to give like employees days to travel so that they can go by train, which takes a bit longer, but also just like video conferences and, and things like this. So, so yeah, there's lots of things to do on the kind of demand reduction side. I think on the other, on the kind of more um, technical side, so one one quite interesting um, idea, which I'm not sure has really been implemented anywhere, but, um, the, you know, I was talking about the non-CO2 impacts, which are just like, to be honest, not discussed very much like especially not by airlines or the aviation industry. It's kind of slightly ignored in a lot of their climate goals. I don't think they have any kind of climate goal on it. But because they depend on atmospheric conditions quite strongly, so you could actually map atmospheric conditions. If you know where they're going to be, you could reroute flights around the worst areas to avoid those those impacts from being especially high. And like similarly, we could also just concentrate more on CO2 fuel efficiency in flights. So um, if we try to optimize reducing greenhouse gas emissions from flights over other things, then we would probably be able to make quite a big cut. These are kind of all small, like small things that together maybe could make a bigger impact. Um, I think there's also things around just, you know, how much fuel aircraft are carrying around um, these sorts of things. Like sometimes they end up carrying a lot of fuel around. They don't need to stop in certain places. Um, or like refuel in certain places where it might be more expensive, et cetera. So th- those kind of policies. So basically just like airlines prioritizing emissions could could go a long way. There's also like this technical thing, like I was saying, a new planes are more efficient. There's some kinds of planes which are more efficient. Direct flights are more efficient. So it, we, however, you know, if you can ever reduce layovers or reduce how many people are having to swap flights and stuff, like that's, that, that's really good. And another actually way that we could reduce emissions is like, <laughs> much as we maybe don't like it but like the, I, I mean you probably have uh low-cost airlines that, that like um easyjet and ryanair in, in the u.s as well but you know this kind of packing people on planes like sardines is actually like really good for the climate you know it's uncomfortable but actually like <laughs> first class seats um you know if you, if you think of the space and the weight that's involved in kind of making this very luxurious um time on a plane that can uh, increase emissions by like, a lot so uh, actually <laughs> like very packed flights make sense for the climate um even if it might not be so comfortable well maybe that's a way to you know get people to fly less if it's uh you know they're only gonna fly <laughs> when they really need to so kind of tracking what you're saying it sounds like regardless of sort of the technological advances we're gonna have to contend with this reality that we need to fly less find other ways to get from a to b or be more mindful about the trips that we take so that we're kind of combining them with other things. Um, and then it sounds like, you know, we've got the potential for more efficient aircraft, which is obviously good, sustainable, you know, aviation fuels, and then a component that is sort of focused on just airlines kind of optimizing their their operations, if you will. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I would add as well, which um, I think is quite important in the context of aviation, is that, you know, in countries like the US and UK, it's pretty common to fly. Lots of people do it, like, especially among certain communities, it's really normalized. But it, it, in a, from a kind of justice perspective, like very few people globally actually fly and especially fly frequently. So if you're kind of a frequent flyer, you are among like a tiny global elite that is, you know, contributing 
to this 2.5%, which feels quite small, but when you think of how many people, you know, sort of if you compare that to food, everyone needs to eat food, but everyone doesn't uh, need to and doesn't fly. So I think that that's one reason I think that aviation has been picked, um, like sort of targeted as like a really important area for emissions is that it is there is this huge injustice of it if you do fly your you know flights are going to be your probably by far your biggest um contribution to climate change i mean it's crazy the amount that one flight has you know every flight not taken is does actually make a difference a much bigger difference than you know not eating a hamburger for example or um really any other measure you can take so i think that's that's an important thing to remember that um it might feel like a sacrifice but it's actually yeah, lots of people don't do it. <laughs> lots of people right. survive fine without doing it. And and also, like, you know, trains are nice. <laughs> I've taken a lot of trains around Europe and, and, um, and they are wonderful. But it's, you know, the problem is when they're not there. Yeah, that's something we've definitely talked about on this podcast, the need for the need for high-speed rail. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. you know, kind of leads to my last question, um, which is how can we as as individuals help drive down aviation emissions? And maybe you've already... Mm-hmm you know, let the cat out of the bag there in terms of <laughs> flying less, but yeah. uh, just kind of maybe from a big picture, your, your thoughts. Yeah. Any individual action you can take on climate change, like falls into a kind of spectrum of impact. So it could be like, you could think of it very much as like, I have my direct impact. Like I'm not taking that flight or I'm not like eating this hamburger. Or I'm not doing this or that. And that's kind of, you, know, you can calculate how that would directly reduce emissions, but there's also just like the more widely the culture change. Right. So, the kind of flight shame um, movement that took off quite a lot in Europe a few years ago was concentrating more on that. I think it was it was it was like it was calling out the injustice of how unfair it is that some people are emitting so much, um, often just for leisure or for really sometimes very little reason. Um, I mean, obviously that inequality inequality exists in lots of other ways as well. Like you know, emissions in the US are they're already twice what they are in Europe, and then Europe is like five times or you know ten times as much as they are in India. And, and so basically, you know, I think until quite recently aviation wasn't really it just wasn't really on the cards of climate like they'd been they'd been like kind of like pushes ticking along ICAO for like 20 years but there's nothing had really happened and I think the flight shame movement did kind of bring it into the limelight of like oh this is actually really bad and it's really unfair and it's also like kind of all sectors need to act right like it's you can't have a sector just because aviation is hard to decarbonize you can't be like oh well we'll just leave it and it'll just go on as usual like everyone has to take a part in this it doesn't have to be that you don't fly but just sort of talking about this like you are doing on your podcast now is really important that we don't like exclude this sector just because it's a difficult one to manage you know and also just sort of you know by not doing something and then talking about it you influence other people and it becomes more normalized Oh, I have taken a few flights recently, <laughs> but I didn't for a long time. I kind of do it on a like very much as need basis. My partner's from Costa Rica, so I now kind of like have have um, decided I will take some flights sometimes from necessity. <laughs> I think uh, having on that kind of as need basis or like talking about how you're trying not to do it. Sometimes people just literally say, "Oh, I don't fly." People are like, "Oh, you're scared." Like even though I'm a climate journalist, people don't necessarily like click why that I might you know avoid taking flights because they just don't know. So I think even even that kind of um, could have a, like a wider impact or maybe that person next time will just like double, you know, think again. Oh, maybe I don't need to take this flight or maybe I could take the train instead. So it's just like that wider culture. If it doesn't have to be all or nothing, it's, it's also just like kind of understanding that this is a high impact activity carbon wise. And the more we like know that and know that we need to do something about it, then, the you know, the more likely we will. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it sounds like really starting with just the awareness, right, that it is a problem and that um, while it's not the only sort of kind of climate injustice, if you will, it's certainly a, a big example and helps draw awareness to the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, while, you know, the U.S. might have um, fewer emissions than, let's say, China, the you know, average person in China is still just a third or less of an average person in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, Jocelyn, you know, I guess it's sort of a, a mixed picture when it comes to aviation, but certainly sounds like there's there's opportunity to make progress on a technological side and, and otherwise, and that, you know, maybe the, the positive part being that it's something that we as individuals can control. Thanks for, you know, coming on and, and helping educate us on you know, what solutions are out there, kind of the magnitude of the problem, and, you know, what each of us can do to to help be part of the solution. Thanks so much. It's been great. So, Thomas, as our uh, climate optimist in-house aeronautical engineer and pilot, uh, what did you uh, think of the interview with Jocelyn? I I think she's incredibly knowledgeable on the topic. Um, It's something that, you know, you don't run into the average journalist who knows a whole, whole bunch about this. But um, I, I I did a little bit of digging and um, I think this this issue has a, a few um, red flags that were sort of facing biofuels industry some years ago in general. And, and that is like the required land area. Right. If you look at the sustainable aviation fuel manufacturing methods, the bulk of them are still reliant upon plant-based feedstocks. There, there was some work done between NASA and the FAA back about a decade or so ago on making biofuels for aviation from algae, but that all ground to a halt. I think it just ended up being too expensive. Um, the whole aim then was to never have to compete against you know, food-producing uh, crops in terms of using land area, and the plan was to grow this algae in the desert. But um, now when you look at BP's website and all these other uh, companies supplying to the aviation sector, their, their feedstocks are, hey, we're going to go and collect McDonald's you know, waste vegetable oil. And well, how, how long is that going to last <laughs> to run a Boeing 747, right? Or like, because I mean, we, when we're talking 14,000 liters of fuel an hour to run a Boeing 747. That's a lot of McDonald's facilities that you're going to have to go and knock, knock on the door of. So, you know, where, where do you end up going with this? You, you end up going to raw uh, agricultural feedstocks of you know, canola or corn or whatever else you're extracting oil or ethanol from. And the question rises, like, is there enough land area for this? Is this going to cause more pressure on on agricultural land that's going to lead to more deforestation. So that's like, I guess my point is that I don't really see these sustainable fuels being so sustainable until they're made from direct air capture. Well, and I guess for people who don't understand direct air capture, I mean, maybe explain it a little bit. In essence, you know, and I'm simplifying here, but you have this equipment that's, you know, pulling in air from the atmosphere stripping out the the carbon dioxide and then on the other side you have you know equipment that's taking water and breaking out and breaking it into hydrogen and oxygen and then you're basically taking those building blocks and you're creating a synthetic hydrocarbon how did i do thomas fantastic jason so yeah using those 
those direct air capture methods, you can create you know, specific hydrocarbon chain links because, of course, with jet fuel, it's pretty important that you get those hydrocarbons you know, exactly right so that you don't have gelling issues and other problems at altitude where things are really cold. Um, but, of course, they, they can do this on a very small scale at this stage, but it's, it is hugely expensive. Yeah, which, you know, brings us to sort of the reality of how do we kind of control the demand side, right? I mean, if we're looking at aviation, you know, Jocelyn was good at pointing out that, you know, we can, we've got the technological solutions, you know, some of what we're talking about here with fuel, you know, improving planes efficiencies, there's operational solutions, but all of that's really intended to reduce, you know, sort of a given flight's footprint. When really, you could argue, what we really need to be doing is working on on curbing demand. And, you know, she talked about, you know, I think in Europe, there's been discussions around a frequent flyer levy, which which could be positive. Uh, you know, we've obviously here on this podcast talked a lot about, you know, a carbon fee. And, you know, I think both could potentially work. It just, it has to be more expensive. I mean, if you you look at the fact that today... One percent of the population is generating fifty percent of the aviation emissions. It just shows us that what we need to zero in on are those folks that are taking, you know, a ton of flights. And so, at a minimum, when you're talking about, you know, making flying more expensive, it should be, you know, enough to be able to turn around and pull that carbon directly out of the atmosphere, right? Because we know that there's problems with the current carbon offsets that are being used. And again, as Jocelyn pointed out rightly, it's it's good for us to support, you know, keeping forests in place, but we can't think that that's a free ticket, right? And so, you know, I think the, you know, honestly, the, the best solution coming out of the gate is making it, you know, more expensive to fly, more in line with what it would cost to pull that carbon out of the atmosphere. Using something like direct air capture, where you can be confident you've removed the carbon that was put out by the flight in the first place. Yeah, which is not $40 a ton. It's more like two to $300 a ton to pull that out with direct air capture. And then after that, you've got to make the biofuel. So it is going to make it really expensive. But until unless we get things started and move in that direction, you will never proceed. It was the same thing with electric cars, right? The first ones were crazy expensive with really crappy range. And now, you know, they're basically on parity with internal combustion. So... It's just going to be a matter of time and, and volume. But I think more importantly is like all these soft targets that the airlines have set for themselves and then absolutely you know, blown, never achieved. We need to make sure that there are some hard targets with um, implications of not achieving those targets um, being quite expensive. S- similar to, again, to what was set in place for utilities with you know, the generation of renewable energy. In other words, if we're we're talking about, you know, the airlines basically saying, hey, you need to produce, you know, let's say 10% of your fuels using this direct air capture method that we're talking about by, you know, 2035. And then that just keeps going up to the point where you're requiring that if an airline flies into to the US, that it has to be running on 100%, you know, basically synthetic fuel. Yeah. And, and you've just got to constantly be checking the market and and saying, well, look, this is what the cost of it is today. We're going to make the fine greater than the cost of generating that fuel. Otherwise, the airlines just end up taking the hit on the fine. 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, the talk about reducing kind of the demand side, requiring, you know, the fuels to be sustainable raises in my mind, you know, the other huge opportunity for us here in the US and I suspect Australia as well is we need to be, you know, ramping up our high speed rail infrastructure. I know France in some cases is actually, you know, banning flights where there is a, you know, a good rail alternative. Yeah. And I, th- I think part of it is that as soon as you start putting a hefty fee on not achieving these direct air capture, sustainable fuel targets, then it'll move the public towards utilizing other means of transit and demanding other means of transit are put in place. Well, and as you and I both know, you know, the beauty of something like high-speed rail is that it delivers you from, you know, from downtown to downtown, right? You're not having to drive to an airport, go through the fun process of, you know, walking through security, checking baggage, right? Waiting to get on the plane. You can hop on a, you know, high-speed rail and in the center of a city and and get dropped off in the center of a city. And, you know, frankly, it's a lot more comfortable and and has better leg room. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the other thing is we're talking about solutions to aviation here that's worth calling out. And and Jocelyn mentioned this as well, is just, you know, kind of the inequity of flying and really the the linkage to kind of climate justice. You know, folks may know that when you talk about historical emissions, the US and Europe account of account for roughly half of all the, you know, carbon that's been put into the atmosphere. And, you know, flying is sort of a you know, a prime example, right? We, I think I mentioned it earlier, right? 1% of the population is responsible for 50% of the emissions. And so effectively you have these people who can afford to fly, you know, be taking multiple international flights in a year, generating these emissions that are impacting these, these countries where, you know, they're, they're vulnerable. I mean, to put it in context, a round trip from, from New York to, to London generates roughly, you know, one and a half tons of, of CO2 per passenger. And that's more than the annual footprint of an average person in the developing world. So, you know, clearly the wealthy can afford to pay uh, a little bit more to be able to fly, you know, because at the end of the day, the, the poor are stuck with, you know, what's going into the atmosphere, really, you know, a problem that they didn't cause. Yeah, I, I think on those you know, on an emission basis, you've got to look at a typical airline, typical air travel using basically the same amount of carbon dioxide emissions or fuel and subsequent carbon dioxide emissions as driving a typical small internal combustion vehicle um, the same distance. But the thing about jet travel is you can cover so much ground in such a short period of time that it doesn't feel like it should be that much, but it is. A significant portion of the ticket price goes towards just paying for fuel. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you put it in that context, right? I mean, that's like taking your your small SUV, driving it only by yourself and driving it, you know, I mean, average American may drive 10 to 15,000 a year. I mean, if you go to, you go on a couple international flights, you, you're you're looking at 20,000 miles, 30,000 miles. So it, it doesn't seem that way when you're flying, but the reality is, to your point, you're covering so much more ground, and so the emissions just add up a lot more quickly. You know, all this sort of leads to the question of, you know, what can each of us do? And this week, we've got two recommendations. The first is for each of us to focus on reducing our air travel footprint by first starting with trying to travel more regionally. I mean, if 
COVID taught us anything, that's that there are great things to see that are that are closer to home. When you do end up taking, you know, a flight, you know, focus on taking a long flight and staying longer in a, in a place rather than doing, you know, multiple shorter vacations. And then if you are going to fly as well, you know, those of us who can afford that plane ticket, you know, also can afford to buy some reputable carbon offsets. And we'll have a link on our website, but the gold standard um, has some great options, you know, for purchasing offsets that, you know, you can feel good. We're at least doing, you know, the minimum to kind of help offset that, that carbon. And, you know, the second option for this week, we'd like to encourage everybody to email your legislator and tell them to pass a, a carbon fee and dividend. We'll have talking points on our website to help with that. But the beauty is once you price carbon, you know, not only does it help with accounting for the environmental cost of flying, but it also has a similar impact across the entire economy. Any final thoughts, Thomas? Uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up. I mean, I think you know, on that last point, we have to realize that the aviation sector has been pretty good at getting itself uh, a free ride when it comes to taxation, let alone carbon taxes. So I think at least closing, as Jocelyn said, some of those taxation loopholes with the airlines on jet fuel is at least a starting point. Yeah, agreed. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Come back and join us again on March 28th when we'll be exploring emissions and solutions related to the most plentiful human-made material on Earth. And as materials go, it's rock hard. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Podcast.